0: This month is a continuation of last month's ghost stories. Late November ghost stories here on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. This episode is brought to you by The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV. A 2021 drama inspired by the true story of Marty and the therapist who turned his life around, then took it over. When he first meets Dr. Ike, Marty just wants to get better at boundaries. Over 30 years, he'll learn all about them and what happens when they get crossed. Check out The Shrink Next Door, only on Apple TV. Check us out on Facebook.com and check the show notes for the sponsors who help keep us on air and find out how you can help. And also check out Taza Chocolates holiday stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. Hey, guess what? Here's the show. Here we go.
1: A Grammatical Ghost There was only one possible objection to the drawing-room, and that was the occasional presence of Miss Carew, and only one possible objection to Miss Carew, and that was that she was dead. She had been dead twenty years, as a matter of fact and record, and to the last of her life, sacredly preserved the treasures and traditions of her family a family bound up as it is quite unnecessary to explain to any one in good society with all that is most venerable and heroic in the history of the republic miss carew never relaxed the proverbial hospitality of her house even when she remained its sole representative she continued to preside at her table with dignity and state, and to set an example of excessive modesty and gentle decorum to a generation of restless young women. It is not likely that, having lived a life of such irreproachable gentility as this, Miss Kerr would have the bad taste to die in any way not pleasant to mention in fastidious society she could be trusted to the last not to outrage those friends who quoted her as an exemplar of propriety she died very unobtrusively of an affection of the heart one june morning while trimming her rose trellis and her lavender-coloured print was not even rumpled when she fell nor were more than the tips of her little bronze slippers visible isn't it dreadful, said the Philadelphians, that the property should go to a very, very distant cousin in Iowa or somewhere else on the frontier about whom nobody knows anything at all? The Carew treasures were packed in boxes and sent away into the Iowa wilderness. The Carew traditions were preserved by the historical society. The Carew property, standing in one of the most umbrageous and aristocratic suburbs of Philadelphia, was rented to all manner of folk, anybody who had money enough to pay the rental, and society entered its doors no more. But at last, after twenty years, and when all save the oldest Philadelphians had forgotten Miss Lydia Carew, the very, very distant cousins appeared. He was quite in the prime of life, and so agreeable and unassuming, that nothing could be urged against him save his patronymic, which, being Boggs, did not commend itself to the Euphemists. With him were two maiden sisters, ladies of excellent taste and manners, who restored the Keru China to its ancient cabinets, and replaced the Keru pictures upon the walls with additions not out of keeping with the elegance of these heirlooms. Society, with a magnanimity almost dramatic, overlooked the name of Boggs, and called all was well at least to an outsider all seemed to be well but in truth there was a certain distress in the old mansion and in the hearts of the well-behaved mrs Boggses. it came about most unexpectedly the sisters had been sitting upstairs looking out at the beautiful grounds of the old place and marveling at the violets which lifted their heads from every possible cranny about the house and talking over the cordiality which they had been receiving by those upon whom they had no claim and they were filled with amiable satisfaction life looked attractive they had often been grateful to miss lydia carew for leaving their brother her fortune now they felt even more grateful to her She had left them a social position, one which even after twenty years of desuetude was fit for use. They descended the stairs together, with arms clasped about each other's waists, and as they did so presented a placid and pleasing sight. They entered their drawing-room with the intention of brewing a cup of tea, and drinking it in calm sociability in the twilight." But as they entered the room, they became aware of the presence of a lady who was already seated at their table regarding their old wedgwood with the air of a connoisseur. There were a number of peculiarities about this intruder. To begin with, she was hatless, quite as if she were a habitué of the house, and was costumed in a prim, lilac-colored lawn of the style of two decades past. But a greater peculiarity was the resemblance this lady bore to a faded daguerreotype. "'If looked at one way, she was perfectly discernible. "'If looked at another, she went out in a sort of blur.' Notwithstanding this comparative invisibility, she exhaled a delicate perfume of sweet lavender, very pleasing to the nostrils of the Mrs. Boggses, who stood looking at her in gentle and unprotesting surprise. I beg your pardon, began Miss Prudence, the younger of the Mrs. Boggses, but-but at this moment the De Guerre type became a blur, and Miss Prudence found herself addressing space. "'The Mrs. Boggses were irritated. "'They had never encountered any mysteries in Iowa. "'They began an impatient search behind doors and portieres "'and even under sofas, "'though it was quite absurd to suppose "'that a lady recognizing the merits of the Carew Wedgwood "'would so far forget herself as to crawl under a sofa. "'When they had given up all hope of discovering the intruder, "'they saw her standing at the far end of the drawing-room, "'critically examining a water-color marine.' the elder miss boggs started toward her with stern decision but the little daguerre type turned with a shadowy smile became a blur and an imperceptibility miss boggs looked at miss prudence boggs if there were ghosts said miss prudence boggs this would be the ghost of lydia carew The twilight was settling into blackness, and Miss Boggs nervously lit the gas, while Miss Prudence ran for other teacups, preferring, for reasons superfluous to mention, not to drink out of the Caru China that evening. The next day, on taking up her embroidery frame, Miss Boggs found a number of old-fashioned cross-stitches added to her Kensington. Prudence, she knew, would never have degraded herself by taking a cross-stitch, and the parlour-maid was above taking such a liberty. Miss Boggs mentioned the incident that night at a dinner, given by an ancient friend of the Carew's. Oh, that's the work of Lydia Carew, without a doubt, cried the hostess. She visits every new family that moves to the house, but she never remains more than a week or two with anyone. "'It must be that she disapproves of them,' suggested Miss Boggs. "'I think that's it,' said the hostess. "'She doesn't like their china or their fiction.' "'I hope she'll disapprove of us,' added Miss Prudence. "'The hostess belonged to a very old Philadelphian family, and she shook her head. "'I should say it was a compliment for even the ghost of Lydia Carew to approve of one,' she said severely. "'The next morning, when the sisters entered their drawing-room, "'there were numerous evidences of an occupant during their absence.' the sofa pillows had been rearranged so that the effect of their grouping was less bizarre than that favored by the western women a horrid little buddhist idol with its eyes fixed on its abdomen had been chastely hidden behind a dresden shepherdess as unfit for the scrutiny of polite eyes and on the table where miss prudence did work in water-colors after the fashion of the impressionists lay a prim and impossible composition representing a moss-rose and a number of heartsease colored with that caution which modest spinster artists instinctively exercise "'Oh, there's no doubt it's the work of Miss Lydia Carew,' said Miss Prudence contemptuously. "'There's no mistaking the drawing of that rigid little rose. "'Don't you remember those wreaths and bouquets framed among the pictures we got "'when the Carew pictures were sent to us? "'I gave some of them to an orphan asylum and burned up the rest.' "'Hush!' cried Miss Boggs involuntarily. "'If she heard you, it would hurt her feelings terribly. "'Of course, I mean,' and she blushed, "'it might hurt her feelings, but how perfectly ridiculous. "'It's impossible.' "'Miss Prudence held up the sketch of the moss rose. "'That may be impossible in an artistic sense, "'but it is a palpable thing.' "'Bosh!' cried Miss Boggs. "'But,' protested Miss Prudence, "'how do you explain it?' "'I don't,' said Miss Boggs, "'and left the room. "'That evening the sisters made a point "'of being in the drawing-room "'before the dusk came on, "'and of lighting the gas "'at the first hint of twilight. "'They didn't believe in Miss Lydia Carew, "'but still they meant to be beforehand with her.' They talked with unwonted vivacity and in a louder tone than was their custom, but as they drank their tea, even their utmost verbosity could not make them oblivious to the fact that the perfume of sweet lavender was stealing insidiously through the room. They tacitly refused to recognize this odor and all that it indicated, when suddenly, with a sharp crash, one of the old Carew teacups fell from the tea-table to the floor and was broken. The disaster was followed by what sounded like a sigh of pain and dismay. I didn't suppose Miss Lydia Carew would ever be as awkward as that, cried the younger Miss Boggs petulantly. Prudence, said her sister with a stern accent, please try not to be a fool. Your theory wouldn't be so bad, said Miss Prudence, half laughing and half crying, if there were any sleeves to my dress. But as you see, there aren't. And then Miss Prudence had something as near hysterics as a healthy young woman in the West can have. I wouldn't think such a perfect lady as Lydia Carew, she ejaculated between her sobs, would make herself so disagreeable. You may talk about good breeding all you please, but I call such intrusion exceedingly bad taste. I have a horrible idea that she likes us and means to stay with us. She left those other people because she did not approve of their habits or their grammar. It would be just our luck to please her. Well, I like your egotism, said Miss Boggs. However, the view Miss Prudence took of the case appeared to be the right one. Time went by and Miss Lydia Carew still remained. When the ladies entered their drawing room, they would see the little lady-like daguerreotype revolving itself into a blur before one of the family portraits, or they noticed that the yellow sofa cushion, toward which she appeared to feel a peculiar antipathy, had been dropped behind the sofa upon the floor, or that one of Jane Austen's novels, which none of the family ever read, had been removed from the bookshelves and left open upon the table i cannot be reconciled to it complained miss boggs to miss prudence i wish we had remained in iowa where we belong of course i don't believe in the thing no sensible person would but still i cannot become reconciled but their liberation was to come and in a most unexpected manner a relative by marriage visited them from the west he was a friendly man and had much to say so he talked all through dinner and afterward followed the ladies to the drawing-room to finish his gossip The gas in the room was turned very low, and as they entered, Miss Prudence caught sight of Miss Carew in company attire, sitting in upright propriety in a stiff-backed chair at the extremity of the apartment. Miss Prudence had a sudden idea. We will not turn up the gas, she said, with an emphasis intended to convey private information to her sister. It will be more agreeable to sit here and talk in this soft light neither her brother nor the man from the west made any objection miss boggs and miss prudence clasping each other's hands divided their attention between their corporeal and their incorporeal guests miss boggs was confident that her sister had an idea and was willing to await its development As the guest from Iowa spoke, Miss Carew bent a politely attentive ear to what he said. "'Ever since Richards took sick that time,' he said briskly, "'it seemed like he shared all responsibility.' The Mrs. Boggs saw the Deguere type put up her shadowy head with a movement of doubt and apprehension. The fact of the matter was, Richards didn't seem to scarce get on the way he might have been expected to. At this conscienceless split of the infinitive and misplacing of the preposition, Miss Carew arose trembling perceptibly. I saw it wasn't no use for him to count on a quick recovery. The Mrs. Boggs lost the rest of the sentence, for at the utterance of the double negative, Miss Lydia Carew had flashed out not in a blur, but with mortal haste, as when life goes out at a pistol shot. The man from the West wondered why Miss Prudence should have cried at so pathetic a part of his story. Thank goodness! And their brother was amazed to see Miss Boggs kiss Miss Prudence with passion and energy. It was the end. Miss Carew returned no more. End of a Grammatical Ghost by Elia Wilkinson Petey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.
0: Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that will tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening.
2: Back to the show. Recording by Dan Gerzinski. The Horror of the Heights by Arthur Conan Doyle. The idea that the extraordinary narrative which has been called the Joyce Armstrong Fragment is an elaborate practical joke, evolved by some unknown person, cursed by a perverted and sinister sense of humor, has now been abandoned by all who have examined the matter. The most macabre and imaginative of plotters would hesitate before linking his morbid fantasies with the unquestioned and tragic facts which reinforce the statement. Though the assertions contained in it, are amazing and even monstrous. It is nonetheless forcing itself upon the general intelligence that they are true, and that we must readjust our ideas to the new situation. This world of ours appears to be separated by a slight and precarious margin of safety from a most singular and unexpected danger. I will endeavor, in this narrative, which reproduces the original document in its necessarily somewhat fragmentary form, to lay before the reader the whole of the facts up to date, prefacing my statement by saying that, if there be any who doubt the narrative of Joyce Armstrong, there can be no question at all as to the facts concerning Lieutenant Myrtle, R. N., and Mr. Hay Connor, who undoubtedly met their end in the manner described. The Joyce Armstrong fragment was found in the field which is called Lower Haycock, lying one mile to the westward of the village of Withiam, "'upon the Kent and Sussex border. "'It was on the 15th September last "'that an agricultural laborer, James Flynn, "'in the employment of Matthew Dodd, farmer, "'of the Chantry Farm, Withiam, "'perceived a briar pipe lying near the footpath "'which skirts the hedge in Lower Haycock. "'A few paces farther on, "'he picked up a pair of broken binocular glasses. "'Finally, among some nettles in the ditch, "'he caught sight of a flat canvas-backed book.' which proved to be a notebook with detachable leaves, some of which had come loose and were fluttering along the base of the hedge. These he collected, but some, including the first, were never recovered, and leave a deplorable hiatus in this all-important statement. The notebook was taken by the laborer to his master, who in turn showed it to Dr. J. H. Atherton, of Hartfield, This gentleman at once recognized the need for an expert examination, and the manuscript is forwarded to the Aero Club in London, where it now lies. The first two pages of the manuscript are missing. There is also one torn away at the end of the narrative, though none of these affect the general coherence of the story. It is conjectured that the missing opening is concerned with the record of Mr. Joyce Armstrong's qualifications as an aeronaut, which can be gathered from other sources— and are admitted to be unsurpassed among the air pilots of England. For many years he has been looked upon as among the most daring and most intellectual of flying men, a combination which has enabled him to both invent and test several new devices, including the common gyroscopic attachment which is known by his name. The main body of the manuscript is written neatly in ink, but the last few lines are in pencil and are so ragged as to be hardly legible exactly, in fact, as they might be expected to appear if they were scribbled off hurriedly from the seat of a moving aeroplane. There are, it may be added, several stains, both on the last page and on the outside cover, which had been pronounced by the Home Office experts to be blood, probably human, and certainly mammalian. The fact that something closely resembling the organism of malaria was discovered in this blood, and that Joyce Armstrong is known to have suffered from intermittent fever— is a remarkable example of the new weapons which modern science has placed in the hands of our detectives. And now a word as to the personality of the author of this epic-making statement. Joyce Armstrong, according to the few friends who really knew something of the man, was a poet and a dreamer, as well as a mechanic and an inventor. He was a man of considerable wealth, much of which he had spent in the pursuit of his aeronautical hobby— he had four private aeroplanes in his hangars near Devizes, and is said to have made no fewer than one hundred and seventy ascents in the course of last year. He was a retiring man with dark moods, in which he would avoid the society of his fellows. Captain Dangerfield, who knew him better than anyone, says that there were times when his eccentricity threatened to develop into something more serious. His habit of carrying a shotgun with him in his aeroplane was one manifestation of it. Another was the morbid effect which the fall of Lieutenant Myrtle had upon his mind. Myrtle, who was attempting the height record, fell from an altitude of something over thirty thousand feet, horrible to narrate, his head was entirely obliterated, though his body and limbs preserved their configuration. At every gathering of airmen, Joyce Armstrong, according to Dangerfield, would ask, with an enigmatic smile, "'And where, pray, is Myrtle's head?' On another occasion, after dinner, at the mess of the flying school on Salisbury Plain, he started a debate as to what will be the most permanent danger which airmen will have to encounter. Having listened to successive opinions as to air pockets, fault of construction, and overbanking, he ended by shrugging his shoulders and refusing to put forward his own views, though he gave the impression that they differed from any advanced by his companions.' It is worth remarking that after his own complete disappearance, it was found that his private affairs were arranged with a precision which may show that he had a strong premonition of disaster. With these essential explanations, I will now give the narrative exactly as it stands, beginning at page three of the blood-soaked notebook. Nevertheless, when I dined at Reims with Coselli and Gustav Raymond, I found that neither of them was aware of any particular danger in the higher layers of the atmosphere. I did not actually say what was in my thoughts, but I got so near to it that if they had any corresponding idea, they could not have failed to express it. But then they are two empty, vainglorious fellows with no thought beyond seeing their silly names in the newspaper. It is interesting to note that neither of them had ever been much beyond the twenty-thousand-foot level. Of course, men have been higher than this, both in balloons and in the ascent of mountains. It must be well above that point that the aeroplane enters the danger zone, always presuming that my premonitions are correct. Aeroplaning has been with us now for more than twenty years, and one might well ask, why should this peril be only revealing itself in our day? The answer is obvious. In the old days of weak engines, when a hundred horsepower gnome or green was considered ample for every need, the flights were very restricted. Now that three hundred horsepower is the rule rather than the exception, visits to the upper layers have become easier and more common. Some of us can remember how, in our youth, Garros made a worldwide reputation by attaining nineteen thousand feet, and it was considered a remarkable achievement to fly over the Alps. Our standard now has been immeasurably raised, and there are twenty high flights for one in former years. Many of them have been undertaken with impunity. The thirty-thousand-foot level has been reached time after time with no discomfort beyond cold and asthma. What does this prove? A visitor might descend upon this planet a thousand times and never see a tiger. Yet tigers exist. And if he chanced to come down into a jungle, he might be devoured. There are jungles of the upper air, and there are worse things than tigers which inhabit them. I believe in time they will map these jungles accurately out. Even at the present moment I can name two of them. One of them lies over the Pau-Barritz district of France. Another is just over my head as I write here in my house in Wiltshire. I rather think there is a third in the Hamburg-Wiesbaden district. It was the disappearance of the airmen that first set me thinking. Of course, everyone said that they had fallen into the sea, but that did not satisfy me at all. First, there was Verriere in France. His machine was found near Bayonne, but they never got his body. There was the case of Baxter also, who vanished, though his engine and some of the iron fixings were found in a wood in Leicestershire. In that case, Dr. Middleton of Amesbury, who was watching the flight with a telescope, declares that just before the clouds obscured the view, he saw the machine, which was at an enormous height, suddenly rise perpendicularly upwards in a succession of jerks in a manner that he would have thought to be impossible. That was the last scene of Baxter. There was a correspondence in the papers, but it never led to anything. There were several other similar cases— and then there was the death of Hay Connor. What a cackle there was about an unsolved mystery of the air and what columns in the halfpenny papers. And yet how little was ever done to get to the bottom of the business. He came down in a tremendous volplane from an unknown height. He never got off his machine and died in his pilot seat. Died of what? Heart disease, said the doctors. Rubbish! Hay Connor's heart was as sound as mine is. What did Venables say? Venables was the only man who was at his side when he died. He said that he was shivering and looked like a man who had been badly scared. Died of fright, said Venables, but could not imagine what he was frightened about. Only said one word to Venables, which sounded like monstrous. They could make nothing of that at the inquest, but I could make something of it. Monsters. That was the last word of poor Harry Hay Connor. And he did die of fright, just as Venables thought. And then there was Myrtle's head. Do you really believe—does anybody really believe that a man's head could be driven clean into his body by the force of a fall? Well, perhaps it may be possible, but I, for one, have never believed that it was so with Myrtle. And the grease upon his clothes, all slimy with grease, said somebody at the inquest. Queer that nobody got thinking after that. I did. "'But then I had been thinking for a good long time. "'I've made three ascents. "'How Dangerfield used to chaff me about my shotgun, "'but I've never been high enough. "'Now, with this new light Paul Verona machine and its 175 rober, "'I should easily touch the 30,000 tomorrow. "'I'll have a shot at the record. "'Maybe I shall have a shot at something else as well. "'Of course, it's dangerous.' If a fellow wants to avoid danger, he had best keep out of flying altogether and subside finally into flannel slippers and a dressing gown. But I'll visit the air jungle tomorrow, and if there's anything there, I shall know it. If I return, I'll find myself a bit of a celebrity. If I don't, this notebook may explain what I am trying to do and how I lost my life in doing it, but no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please.' I chose my Paul Verona monoplane for the job. There is nothing like a monoplane when real work is to be done. Beaumont found that out in very early days. For one thing, it doesn't mind damp, and the weather looks as if we should be in the clouds all the time. It's a bonny little model, and answers my hand like a tender-mouthed horse. The engine is a ten-cylinder rotary rover, working up to 175. It is all the modern improvements—enclosed fuselage, high-curved landing skids, brakes, gyroscopic steadiers, and three speeds, worked by an alteration of the angle of the planes upon the Venetian blind principle. I took a shotgun with me and a dozen cartridges filled with buckshot. You should have seen the face of Perkins, my old mechanic, when I directed him to put them in. I was dressed like an Arctic explorer with two jerseys under my overalls, thick socks inside my padded boots, a storm cap with flaps and my talc goggles. It was stifling outside the hangars, but I was going for the summit of the Himalayas and had to dress for the part. Perkins knew there was something on and implored me to take him with me. Perhaps I should if I were using the biplane, but a monoplane is a one-man show if you want to get the last foot of life out of it. Of course, I took an oxygen bag. The man who goes for the altitude record without one will either be frozen or smothered, or both. I had a good look at the planes, the rudder bar, and the elevating lever before I got in. Everything was in order so far as I could see. Then I switched on my engine and found that she was running sweetly. When they let her go, she rose almost at once upon the lowest speed. I circled my home field once or twice just to warm her up, And then, with a wave to Perkins and the others, I flattened out my planes and put her on her highest. She skimmed like a swallow downwind for eight or ten miles until I turned her nose up a little and she began to climb in a great spiral for the cloud bank above me. It's all important to rise slowly and adapt yourself to the pressure as you go. It was a close warm day for an English September, and there was the hush and heaviness and impending rain. Now and then there came sudden puffs of wind from the southwest, one of them so gusty and unexpected that it caught me napping and turned me half round for an instant. I remember the time when gusts and whirls and air pockets used to be things of danger, before we learned to put an overmastering power into our engines. Just as I reached the cloud banks, with an altimeter marking three thousand, down came the rain. My word how it poured! It drummed upon my wings and lashed against my face, blurring my glasses so that I could hardly see. I got down onto a low speed, for it was painful to travel against it. As I got higher, it became hail, and I had to turn tail to it. One of my cylinders was out of action, a dirty plug, I should imagine, but still I was rising steadily with plenty of power. After a bit, the trouble passed, whatever it was, and I heard the full, deep-throated purr. The ten singing is one. That's where the beauty of our modern silencers come in. We can at last control our engines by ear. How they squeal and squeak and sob when they are in trouble. All those cries for help were wasted in the old days, when every sound was swallowed up by the monstrous racket of the machine. If only the early aviators could come back and see the beauty and perfection of the mechanism which have been bought at the cost of their lives. About 9.30, I was nearing the clouds. Down below me, all blurred and shadowed with rain, lay the vast expanse of Salisbury Plain. Half a dozen flying machines were doing hack work at the thousand-foot level, looking like little black swallows against the green background. I dare say they were wondering what I was doing up in cloudland. Suddenly a gray curtain drew across beneath me, and wet folds of vapors were swirling round my face. It was clamily cold and miserable, but I was above the hailstorm, and that was something gained. The cloud was as dark and thick as a London fog, and my anxiety to get clear, I cocked her nose up until the automatic alarm bell rang, and I actually began to slide backwards— My sopped and dripping wings had made me heavier than I thought, but presently I was in lighter cloud, and soon had cleared the first layer. There was a second, opal-colored and fleecy, at a great height above my head, a white unbroken ceiling above, and a dark unbroken floor below, with the monoplane laboring upwards upon a vast spiral between them. It is deadly lonely in these cloud spaces— Once a great flight of some small water birds went past me, flying very fast to the westwards. The quick whir of their wings and their musical cry were cheery to my ear. I fancy that they were teal, but I am a wretched zoologist. Now that we humans have become birds, we must really learn to know our brethren by sight. The wind down beneath me whirled and swayed the broad cloud plain, once a great eddy formed in it. A whirlpool of vapor, and through it as down a funnel I caught sight of the distant world. A large white biplane was passing at a vast depth beneath me. I fancy it was the morning mail service betwixt Bristol and London. Then the drift swirled inwards again, and the great solitude was unbroken. Just after ten I touched the lower edge of the upper cloud stratum. It consisted of fine diaphanous vapor drifting swiftly— from the westwards. The wind had been steadily rising all this time, and it was now blowing a sharp breeze, twenty-eight an hour by my gauge. Already it was very cold, though my altimeter only marked nine thousand. The engines were working beautifully, and we went droning steadily upwards. The cloud bank was thicker than I had expected, but at last it thinned out into a golden mist before me. And then, in an instant, I had shot out from it— and there was an unclouded sky and a brilliant sun above my head, all blue and gold above, all shining silver below, one vast glimmering plain as far as my eyes could reach. It was a quarter past ten o'clock, and the bar graph needle pointed to twelve thousand eight hundred. Up I went, and up. My ears concentrated upon the deep purring of my motor, my eyes busy always with the watch, the revolution indicator, the petrol level— "'and the oil pump. "'No wonder aviators are said to be a fearless race, "'with so many things to think of. "'There is no time to trouble about oneself. "'About this time, I noted how unreliable is the compass "'when above a certain height from Earth. "'At 15,000 feet, mine was pointing east and a point south. "'The sun and the wind gave me my true bearings. "'I had hoped to reach an eternal stillness "'in these high altitudes, "'but with every thousand feet of ascent, "'the gale grew stronger.' My machine groaned and trembled in every joint and rivet as she faced it, and swept away like a sheet of paper when I banked her on the turn, skimming downwind at a greater pace, perhaps, than ever mortal man has moved. Yet I had always to turn again and tack up in the wind's eye, for it was not merely a height record that I was after. By all my calculations, it was above little Wiltshire that my air jungle lay and all my labors might be lost if I struck the outer layers at some farther point. When I reached the 19,000-foot level, which was about midday, the wind was so severe that I looked with some anxiety to the stays of my wings, expecting momentarily to see them snap or slacken. I even cast loose the parachute behind me and fastened its hook onto the ring of my leathern belt so as to be ready for the worst. "'Now was the time when a bit of scamped work by the mechanic is paid for by the life of the aeronaut.' "'But she held together bravely. "'Every chord and strut was humming and vibrating like so many harp-strings, "'but it was glorious to see how, for all the beating and the buffeting, "'she was still the conqueror of nature and the mistress of the sky. "'There is surely something divine in man himself "'that he should rise so superior to the limitations which creation seemed to impose.' Rise, too, by such unselfish, heroic devotion as this air-conquest has shown. Talk of human degeneration! When has such a story as this been written in the annals of our race? These were the thoughts in my head as I climbed that monstrous inclined plane, with the wind sometimes beating in my face and sometimes whistling behind my ears, while the cloudland beneath me fell away to such a distance "'that the folds and hummocks of silver "'had all smoothed out into one flat shining plain. "'But suddenly I had a horrible and unprecedented experience. "'I have known before what it is to be "'and what our neighbors have called a tourbillon, "'but never on such a scale as this. "'That huge sweeping river of wind which I have spoken "'had, as it appears, whirlpools within it "'which were as monstrous as itself.' Without a moment's warning, I was dragged suddenly into the heart of one. I spun round for a minute or two with such velocity that I almost lost my senses, and then fell suddenly, left wing foremost, down the vacuum funnel in the center. I dropped like a stone and lost nearly a thousand feet. It was only my belt that kept me in my seat, and the shock and breathlessness left me hanging half insensible over the side of the fuselage. But I am always capable of a supreme effort. It is my one great merit as an aviator. I was conscious that the descent was slower. The whirlpool was a cone rather than a funnel, and I had come to the apex. With a terrific wrench, throwing my weight all to one side, I leveled my planes and brought her head away from the wind. In an instant, I had shot out of the eddies and was skimming down the sky. Then, shaken but victorious, I turned her nose up and began once more my steady grind on the upward spiral. I took a large sweep to avoid the danger spot of the whirlpool, and soon I was safely above it. Just after one o'clock, I was twenty-one thousand feet above the sea level. To my great joy, I had topped the gale, and with every hundred feet of ascent, the air grew stiller. On the other hand, it was very cold, and I was conscious of that peculiar nausea which goes with the rarefication of the air. For the first time I unscrewed the mouth of my oxygen bag and took an occasional whiff of the glorious gas. I could feel it running like a cordial through my veins, and I was exhilarated almost to the point of drunkenness. I shouted and sang as I soared upwards into the cold, still-outer world. It is very clear to me that the insensibility which came upon Glacier, and in a lesser degree upon Coxwell, when, in 1862, they ascended in a balloon to the height of 30,000 feet, was due to the extreme speed with which a perpendicular ascent is made. Doing it in an easy gradient and accustoming oneself to the lessened barometric pressure by slow degrees, there are no such dreadful symptoms. At the same great height, I found that even without my oxygen inhaler, I could breathe without undue distress. It was bitterly cold, however, and my thermometer was at zero Fahrenheit. At one-thirty I was nearly seven miles above the surface of the earth and still ascending steadily. I found, however, that the rarefied air was giving markedly less support to my planes, and that my angle of ascent had to be considerably lowered in consequence. It was already clear that even with my light weight and strong engine power, there was a point in front of me where I should be held. To make matters worse, one of my sparking plugs was in trouble again, and there was an intermittent misfiring in the engine— My heart was heavy with the fear of failure. It was about that time that I had a most extraordinary experience. Something whizzed past me in a trail of smoke and exploded with a loud hissing sound, sending forth a cloud of steam. For the instant, I could not imagine what had happened. Then I remembered that the earth is forever being bombarded by meteor stones, and would be hardly inhabitable were they not in nearly every case turned to vapor in the outer layers of the atmosphere here is a new danger for the high-altitude man, for two others passed me when I was nearing the forty-thousand-foot mark. I cannot doubt that at the edge of Earth's envelope the risk would be a very real one. My barograph needle marked forty-one-thousand-three-hundred when I became aware that I could go no farther. Physically, the strain was not as yet greater than I could bear, but my machine had reached its limit." The attenuated air gave no firm support to the wings, and the least tilt developed into a side slip, while she seemed sluggish on her controls. Possibly had the engine been at its best, another thousand feet might have been within our capacity, but it was still misfiring, and two out of the ten cylinders appeared to be out of action. If I had not already reached the zone for which I was searching, then I should never see it upon this journey. But was it not possible that I had attained it? Soaring in circles like a monstrous hawk upon the 40,000-foot level, I let the monoplane guide herself, and with my Mannheim glass, I made a careful observation of my surroundings. The heavens were perfectly clear. There was no indication of those dangers which I had imagined. I have said that I was soaring in circles. It struck me suddenly that I would do well to take a wider sweep and open up a new air tract. If the hunter entered an earth jungle, he would drive through it if he wished to find his game. My reasoning had led me to believe that the air jungle which I had imagined lay somewhere over Wiltshire. This should be to the south and west of me. I took my bearings from the sun, for the compass was hopeless, and no trace of earth was to be seen, nothing but the distant silver cloud plain. However, I got my direction as best I might and kept her head straight to the mark. I reckoned that my petrol supply would not last for more than another hour or so, but I could afford to use it to the last drop, since a single magnificent volplane could at any time take me to the earth. Suddenly I was aware of something new. The air in front of me had lost its crystal clearness. It was full of long, ragged wisps of something which I could only compare to very fine cigarette smoke. It hung about in wreaths and coils, turning and twisting slowly in the sunlight. As the monoplane shot through it, I was aware of a faint taste of oil upon my lips, and there was a greasy scum upon the woodwork of the machine. Some infinitely fine organic matter appeared to be suspended in the atmosphere. There was no life there. It was inchoate and diffuse, extending for many square acres and then fringing off into the void. No, it was not life, but might it not be the remains of life? Above all, might it not be the food of life, of monstrous life, even as the humble grease of the ocean is the food for the mighty whale? The thought was in my mind when my eyes looked upwards and I saw the most wonderful vision that ever man has seen. Can I hope to convey it to you even as I saw it myself last Thursday? Conceive a jellyfish such as sails in our summer seas, bell-shaped, and of enormous size, far larger, I should judge, than the dome of St. Paul's. It was of a light pink color, veined with a delicate green, but the whole huge fabric so tenuous that it was but a fairy outline against the dark blue sky. It pulsated with a delicate and regular rhythm, from it there depended two long, drooping green tentacles, which swayed slowly backwards and forwards. This gorgeous vision passed gently with noiseless dignity over my head, as light and fragile as a soap bubble, and drifted upon its stately way. I'd have turned my monoplane that I might look after this beautiful creature, when, in a moment, I found myself amidst a perfect fleet of them, "'of all sizes, but none so large as the first. "'Some were quite small, but the majority about as big as an average balloon "'and with much the same curvature at the top. "'There was in them a delicacy of texture and colouring "'which reminded me of the finest Venetian glass. "'Pale shades of pink and green were the prevailing tints, "'but all had a lovely iridescence, "'where the sun shimmered through their dainty forms.' "'Some hundreds of them drifted past me, a wonderful fairy squadron of strange unknown argosies of the sky, creatures whose forms and substance were so attuned to these pure heights that one could not conceive anything so delicate within actual sight or sound of earth. But soon my attention was drawn to a new phenomenon, the serpents of the outer air.' These were long, thin, fantastic coils of vapor-like material, which turned and twisted with great speed, flying round and round at such a pace that the eyes could hardly follow them. Some of these ghost-like creatures were twenty or thirty feet long, but it was difficult to tell their girth, for their outline was so hazy that it seemed to fade away into the air around them. These air snakes were a very light gray or smoke color, with some darker lines within, which gave the impression of a definite organism. One of them whisked past my very face, and I was conscious of a cold, clammy contact, but their composition was so unsubstantial that I could not connect them with any thought of physical danger, any more than the beautiful bell-like creatures which had preceded them. There was no more solidity in their frames than in the floating spume from a broken wave, but a more terrible experience was in store for me. "'Floating downwards from a great height, there came a purplish patch of vapor, "'small as I saw at first, but rapidly enlarging as it approached me, "'until it appeared to be hundreds of square feet in size. "'Though fashioned in some transparent jelly-like substance, "'it was nonetheless of much more definite outline and solid consistence "'than anything which I had seen before. "'There were more traces, too, of a physical organization.' Especially two vast shadowy circular plates upon either side, which may have been eyes and a perfectly solid white projection between them, which was as curved and cruel as the beak of a vulture. The whole aspect of this monster was formidable and threatening, and it kept changing its color from a very light mauve to a dark angry purple so thick that it cast a shadow as it drifted between my monoplane and the sun. On the upper curve of its huge body, there were three great projections, which I can only describe as enormous bubbles, and I was convinced as I looked at them that they were charged with some extremely light gas, which served to buoy up the misshapen and semi-solid mass in the rarefied air. The creature moved swiftly along, keeping pace easily with the monoplane, and for twenty miles or more it formed my horrible escort, hovering over me like a bird of prey which is waiting to pounce. Its method of progression, done so swiftly that it was not easy to follow, was to throw out a long, glutinous streamer in front of it, which in turn seemed to draw forward the rest of the writhing body. So elastic and gelatinous was it that never for two successive minutes was it the same shape, and yet each change made it more threatening and loathsome than the last. I knew that it meant mischief. Every purple flush of its hideous body told me so. The vague, goggling eyes which were turned always upon me were cold and merciless in their viscid hatred. I dipped the nose of my monoplane downwards to escape it. As I did so, as quick as a flash, there was shot out a long tentacle from this massive floating blubber, and it felt as light and sinuous as a whiplash across the front of my machine. There was a loud hiss as it lay for a moment across the hot engine, and it whisked itself into the air again, while the huge, flat body drew itself together as if in sudden pain. I dipped to a vol-peak, but again a tentacle fell over the monoplane— and it was shorn off by the propeller as easily as it might have cut through a smoke-wreath. A long-gliding, sticky serpent-like coil came from behind and caught me round the waist, dragging me out of the fuselage. I tore at it, my fingers sinking into the smooth, glue-like surface. For an instant I disengaged myself, but only to be caught round the boot by another coil, which gave me a jerk that tilted me almost onto my back. As I fell over, I blazed off both barrels of my gun, though indeed it was like attacking an elephant with a pea-shooter to imagine that any human weapon could cripple that mighty bulk. And yet I aimed better than I knew, for with a loud report, one of the great blisters upon the creature's back exploded with the puncture of the buckshot. It was very clear that my conjecture was right, that these vast clear bladders were distended with some lifting gas— for in an instant the huge cloud-like body turned sideways, writhing desperately to find its balance, while the white beak snapped and gaped in horrible fury. But already I had shot away on the steepest glide that I dared to attempt, my engine still full-on, the flying propeller and the force of gravity shooting me downwards like an arrow light. behind me I saw a dull purplish smudge growing swiftly smaller and merging into the blue sky behind it. I was safe out of the deadly jungle of the outer air. Once out of danger, I throttled my engine, for nothing tears a machine to pieces quicker than running on full power from a height. It was a glorious spiral volplane from nearly eight miles of altitude, first to the level of the silver cloud bank, then to that of the storm cloud beneath it, and finally in beating rain to the surface of the earth. I saw the Bristol Channel beneath me as I broke from the clouds, but, having still some petrol in my tank, I got twenty miles inland before I found myself stranded in a field half a mile from the village of Ashcombe. There I got three tins of petrol from a passing motor car, and at ten minutes past six that evening I alighted gently in my own home meadow at Devize's, After such a journey as no mortal upon earth has ever yet taken and lived to tell the tale, I have seen the beauty, and I have seen the horror of the heights, and greater beauty or greater horror than that is not within the ken of man. And now it is my plan to go once again before I give my results to the world. My reason for this is that I must surely have something to show by way of proof before I lay such a tale before my fellow men. It is true that others will soon follow and will confirm what I have said, and yet I should wish to carry conviction from the first. Those lovely iridescent bubbles of the air should not be hard to capture. They drift slowly upon their way, and the swift monoplane could intercept their leisurely course. It is likely enough that they would dissolve in the heavier layers of the atmosphere, and that some small heap of amorphous jelly might be all that I should bring to earth with me. And yet something there would surely be by which I could substantiate my story. Yes, I will go, even if I run a risk by doing so. These purple horrors would not seem to be numerous. It is probable that I shall not see one. If I do, I shall dive at once. At the worst, there is always the shotgun, and my knowledge of— Here, a page of the manuscript is unfortunately missing. On the next page is written in large, straggling writing. Forty-three thousand feet. I shall never see earth again. They are beneath me, three of them. God help me, it is a dreadful death to die. Such, in its entirety, is the Joyce Armstrong statement, of the man nothing has since been seen. Pieces of his shattered monoplane have been picked up in the preserves of Mr. Bud Lushington upon the borders of Kent and Sussex, within a few miles of the spot where the notebook was discovered. If the unfortunate aviator's theory is correct that this air jungle, as he called it, existed only over the southwest of England... Then it would seem that he had fled from it at the full speed of his monoplane, but had been overtaken and devoured by these horrible creatures at some spot in the outer atmosphere above the place where the grim relics were found. The picture of that monoplane skimming down the sky with the nameless terrors flying as swiftly beneath it and cutting it off Always from the earth, while they gradually closed in upon their victim, is one upon which a man who valued his sanity would prefer not to dwell. There are many, as I am aware, who still jeer at the facts which I have here set down, but even they must admit that Joyce Armstrong has disappeared, and I would commend to them his own words. This notebook may explain what I am trying to do and how I lost my life in doing it, but no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please and of The Horror of the Heights
0: Hey everyone It's me, DB Just reminding you We have t-shirts in the show Just go to pgttcm.com Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers Heck, we've even got some shell curtains in there